Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifract. Today in the house, Jennifer Riel, who is the IDEO's Global Director of Strategy. Jennifer, in this role, she collaborates with clients and internal teams to push the edges of creative problem solving, leveraging tools from strategy and, yes, design thinking. We're going to get into this. As a strategy advisor, Jennifer has worked across industries and countries, helping organizations and teams to build winning, sustainable, and human-centered strategies. We're going to get into that as well. Before IDEO, uh, Jennifer spent 13 years at the Rotman School of Management, where I was uh, my pleasure to meet her, where she taught undergrads, MBAs, and executives how to think creatively about their toughest challenges. And it's during this period, she partnered with organizations to help them build their strategic thinking capabilities and to transform their teams. She's also the author of a fantastic book that I reread in August of 2022 called Creating Great Choices, A Leader's Guide to Integrative Thinking, written in partnership with her pal, Roger L. Martin. The book is a Wall Street Journal bestseller and was shortlisted in my home country, Canada's National Business Book Award. Now, Jennifer, thanks for being here. It's so good to see you. First question out of the hopper. Can you help us define, for those that may not quite get it, uh, what integrative thinking actually is? Absolutely. It's, first of all, my pleasure to be chatting with you today, Dan. Um, integrative thinking is a concept that actually originated with my co-author and my mentor, Roger Martin. Um, Roger was the dean at the Rotman School of Management, where, where we met. And um, while he was there, he he spent a good number of years working on this theory of how highly successful leaders make more effective decisions more of the time. And there's a temptation when you're trying to learn from successful leaders to focus on their actions, the things they did to be successful. And the problem with that is that what it takes to be successful is highly context dependent, right? If you want to do what Jack Welch did to be successful, that was very in vogue when I was doing my MBA <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah. We were all supposed to be like Jack Welch. Um, it's only really going to be applicable if you're running General Electric in 1985, right? right. And even then, maybe there are some things that we might question uh, using the lens of today. Um, so what Roger looked at was less the actions and more the thinking that led to, to those outcomes and really focused on a set of leaders who seemed to do something a little counterintuitive when it came to decision making. So most of us learn how to make a decision. And it looks something like lay out the options, figure out the pros and cons, choose the option that is least destroyed by the process of that analysis, move on with your life, um, find the right answer as quickly as you can and defend it to the hilt, right? Those, those sorts of tools that we learn even in, in school as children. What Roger found and, and the theory we then worked together to build was that there are some leaders who look at those moments of decision, who look at the trade-off and say, not good enough. Mm. I'm not willing to choose the option that is least destroyed if it doesn't actually solve the problem, if it doesn't really create value in the world and get me where I need to go. And so if instead of thinking of the either or or the opposing choices as an obstacle to be overcome, what if we perceive those opposing models as an opportunity, as raw materials not to help us choose, 
but to help us create. The book is called Creating Great Choices Intentionally yeah. uh, because it is about leveraging the tension of opposing perspectives or opposing models to create a new and better answer. That's really what we're talking about. Okay, so with my, um, thank you, my HR people and culture hat on, still a recovering executive from those ranks and trying to help organizations as best I can in my company of one role now, Jennifer. Um, how does culture play a part in integrative thinking, i.e. in so much as, does, does, is this sort of a chicken versus egg thing again, right? Do you need the culture to support integrative thinking or can integrative thinking support the culture? Or will you do a Jedi mind trick and say, actually, we can come at it from two angles to create a new and better creative choice, Dan? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, culture can be naturally an enabler or an inhibitor. I think there are many organizations that have cultures that make integrative thinking harder. They tend to be cultures where um, debate is venerated, not for the purpose of understanding, but for the purpose of winning. So someone is going to win the debate and they will um, get all the benefits of being the victor in this debate. There will be winners and losers. Um, there are organizations where speed of decision-making is uh, prioritized above all else or the appearance of mm. decisiveness uh, versus the actual impact of the decision. Those kinds of cultures, um, incremental cultures, uh, tend to make it harder to leverage integrative thinking. There are other cultures where um, asking questions is valued, uh, where collaborative decision-making is really important, um, where creativity is seen as a core leadership skill that um, makes it a little bit easier. But it's not an all or nothing. I think you know, one, of the, one of the organizations that is most deeply committed to integrative thinking as a core leadership skill is Procter & Gamble. Mm. I think they are an organization that's often known for having a very strong, very decisive culture where leaders have strong ownership of their business and of the choices they need to make. And so it's quite interesting that they said yes, and we need uh, for our leaders to have this additional tool in their tool belt, make the trade-off when it works, be decisive when the answer gets you what you need, but in those conditions where the answers aren't good enough or it doesn't actually create the value you need, here's this additional thinking tool that you can use mm. that enables you to, to come to different answers. So it's not every decision, it's not every single choice you need to make, but it, under those conditions where the answers aren't good enough, here's an, an additional tool for you. So with the, it doesn't have to be PNG, PNG, sorry, but with organizations that, you know, are ultimately made up of people who may have learned, you know, an archaic, antiquated, almost, uh, you know, slightly dilapidated in, in leadership behavior way of thinking, do, do we in the HR and the learning and the leadership development space have to do a better job in twofold? One is, you know, if you put on your former hat at Rotman, uh, developing up and coming leaders in MBAs and and so forth, and do the internal teams, if you will, at the PNGs have to kind of also develop their leaders or redevelop them so that integrative thinking is 
uh, part and parts of the calculus of the culture, i.e., you know, integrated in their performance development and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I preaching to the choir on this, you can't mandate culture, right? You can't <laughs> yeah. tell people this is our culture now, right? You have to be very careful and designerly about um, what levers you have to pull to build a culture. So it becomes, you know, what do we reward both formally and informally? It's, you know, how do we, what do we talk about um, mm. in our meetings? What do we prioritize? And so for, you know, how, how a company, an organization can build a culture of integrative thinking, I think there are a few key dimensions. Certainly, uh, learning is a big part of it. There's some unlearning for us to do, right? Mm. If we've been trained our whole lives that what you have to do is figure out what the trade-off is, do the pros and cons and choose and move on with your life, there is some unlearning. And, and some of it is about just mindset, acknowledging there are very few right answers in the world. There are to be clear, better and worse answers. There are very okay. few definitive right answers. And yet we operate day to day as if there are, that there are right answers and I hold them. And so we need to help people unlearn some of that and build the critical skills that they need to be better integrative thinkers. And when it comes to senior leaders in particular, we need to help them create space. So how do they react when two of the folks who report to them are clearly in a closed either or win-lose mindset. What do they do when they have someone come to them with a strategy and they think that they've made a trade-off that, that isn't gonna work? How do they create space for them to consider using integrative thinking or uh, to talk about those ideas in a different way than they are today? So there are many different levers you have to pull, but I think learning is a big piece and then uh, helping your most senior leaders build a repertoire of questions or ways of operating that enable those around them to have the time and space and opportunity and permission to do this kind of thinking. So I'm going to play back one of your uh, passages from the book because uh, it sort of delves into this and segues nicely. So uh, here goes. So uh, according to you, but when we adults propose an idea at work that gets killed, we tend to blame politics, other people's lack of vision, and institutional sorry, cowardice. We rarely examine the role of our own approach to sharing the idea played in its failure. So can you unpack that in terms of back to culture and dynamics and what we do and don't do as leaders? Yeah, I, I think about the, the tools we tend to use when we're trying to sell an idea and even the mental model of selling an idea. Yeah, yeah. For some of us, that feels uncomfortable, right. right? We have the meeting before the meeting to make sure that everyone's in, you know, on board and we have a little bit of corporate theater. And in the worst case scenario, it's like, I'm going to talk for 55 minutes and then in the last five minutes, sort of say, and please hold your questions to the last five minutes. And then any questions? No. So we're all good. Great. Let's leave. Right. All of that is intended to minimize disagreement, to, to bury it, to push it down in hopes that our idea will just be accepted. And, you know, when it isn't accepted, we tend to focus on the limitations of others. They just didn't understand the idea or politics got in the way or it's their fault, right? It's mm. their, they just don't have the vision. And I mean, 
this is true inside organizations, definitely true in consulting relationships, right? The client just didn't understand how great this was, or they failed to execute our brilliance properly. Of course. Um, of course. And so really what, what we're talking about is acknowledging that there are different ways to share ideas in organizations that part of it is having what we might call organizational empathy. If you've ever been in one of those meetings where you're being sold to, you know, it's a horrible feeling. You're not enjoying that meeting. You're just being asked to rubber stamp. If you have a concern, it's going to be seen as a threat or something to be knocked down. And so instead, it's saying, how do you design a process where you can actually engage people in the consideration of ideas as ideas, separate people from ideas in a way that lets us really imagine, really understand and come to a decision that is better than what we started with. And that's going to require getting comfortable with messier meetings. Mm -hmm. It's going to require getting comfortable with moments where you won't have sole authorship of the idea, that, that it will necessarily be something that was created at least in part collectively. And so again, it's another set of things that we need to unlearn um, in order to, to feel like we can embrace these new ways of being or new ways of working. It's like as if uh, Alvin Toffler and Carol Dweck had a child, we'd have the unlearning and the growth mindset together to, to create what you're up to. I love it. Or may, maybe a little bit of uh, Donald Schoen, some reflective practice belongs in there too. So there are many grandparents to this work um, and, and they would be too. Uh, we're absolutely, um, what we're talking about is, is reflecting is optimism is unlearning all of, all of those important principles and tools for how we create new things in the world. Now, a couple of times so far in sort of 15 minutes or so, you've brought up the word questions or better questions or open questions and questioning. So Tell me a bit about how important a culture of questions can be to both integrative thinking and just, you know, uh, ultimately like performing as an organization. My view on this has actually shifted a little bit over the last few years. So I spent 13 years at a business school and business schools are, in my view, more in the business of answers. Right. So it is, you know, some people will say the academy is the search for truth. That feels a little grandiose to me. It's certainly a search for understanding, knowledge, meaning. Um, and so a question starts that search, but ultimately you're, you're after um, an answer or a set of powerful answers. I then went to work at IDEO, um, the great design and innovation firm. And um, they are an organization that is all about questions. They love questions. And there was a period early on, we were working on a particular question and it was a bunch of very senior leaders and I gave them a specific task I was facilitating. And I said, here's the question I need you to answer. Please go away, you have 15 minutes, come back with a sketch, a prototype and answer to this question. And one of the groups came back with four new questions. Uh. And so questions, and answers need need to go together, right? It is not questions for their own sake. It is not um, the pursuit of endless questioning because it feels good or is entertaining or forestalls your need to choose. 
when I'm teaching integrative thinking, I often say, it's not like you can go to your boss and say, this lady told me I never have to choose. I can just think about this for a while. It's not that. Um, it is asking different kinds of questions in service of different kinds of answers. And so if, you've, if you're asking the question you have always asked in the way you always ask it, you're likely to get the same answers. And so you do need some new questions, some broader, more open questions that enable you to see things with different eyes to explore them in different ways in hopes of getting to some different answers. I love it. That's And really a culture of question does allow for better answers, I assume, right? I mean, that absolutely. I, that is the one of the most powerful things about IDEO as an organization is um, they take the question and come back with an even richer, more, more provocative question. And that enables great design, right? Great questions enable great design. Uh, and so that that's very much a part of the culture. Okay, tangentially, uh, in creating great choices, uh, you allude to kind of three key pillars, metacognition, empathy, and creativity. And so I wanted to dig a little bit into your point of organizational empathy just from a couple seconds ago. And empathy, you describe as having that better understanding of others' thinking that ultimately helps us to see gaps in our thinking to create opportunities for collaboration, I assume probably better answers. So what are we doing right and perhaps what do we need to learn from our past couple of years of a pandemic to, to, to increase this level of empathy, to get integrative thinking in a more uh, dominant fashion, if you will? Yeah, I mean, empathy is a fascinating word in that I think it is broadly used and even, even as broadly misused, right? So people will use empathy to describe the impulse to be nice <laughs> or to be kind. And I think being kind is important, but it's not empathy. Right. Um, and it's not imagining how you would feel if you were in another person's shoes. That's um, sympathy. Uh, empathy is truly, deeply, earnestly seeking to understand the other person's perspective, their thoughts, feelings, mindsets, as they understand them, mm. not how you would if you were them. You're not them. You're, you're seeking to understand that person in the fullness of, of who they are. Um, and the world that we live in, we, we move very quickly to evaluation and judgment. So that makes empathy hard. We have a whole slew of cognitive biases that also make true empathy hard. Empathy is essentially human. Humans are social creatures. We are designed to interact and understand. If you um, see small children interacting uh, before a certain age, if one starts to cry, they all start to cry. And it's not just that someone was loud. It's that there is this emotional contagion mm -hmm. that is very much about us as humans being social creatures for survival purposes. That, that's how we survived, right? We're these sort of fairly uh, weak, naked, pink things, right? We're not naturally uh, at the top of the food chain with great big teeth or very strong, uh, you know. Thank God for that too, Jennifer. Thank true, you. true. Yeah. Um, and so our cognitive biases interrupt our ability to have true empathy. So we know from an HR and talent perspective what some of these are, uh, the like me bias that says, it's just easier for me to understand 
and like people who remind me of myself. I might not even be aware of it, but if we have shared experience, it is easier for me to like and understand that person, to connect with them. And so organizationally, I'm more likely to hire that person or promote that, Uh right? It's the root of a lot of very bad behavior. And so when we talk about empathy in the workplace, it's acknowledging that we have these innate biases. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human, right? I think we have this incredibly uh, loaded conversation around bias that suggests that if you're biased, you're evil. No, if you're biased, you're human. We are literally all biased. Um, And so what we need are tools to overcome some of those natural biases and the things that interrupt our empathy. And that's where design is extraordinarily powerful, right? The, The tools of design thinking that come from sociology, from psychology, from you know, the, the worlds of anthropology that are about deeply understanding or seeking to understand other people's experiences mm-hmm. enable us to have greater empathy. And so this is saying, like, how do I actually seek to understand the people that I am working with, whether they're clients, whether they're my peers, whether they're my boss, and what they need? from this conversation or this initiative or this experience, right? And bringing that desire to understand, the desire to design for and with to the way that that I engage in problem solving, in meetings, in whatever it is that we are creating collectively as an organization. I love it. Okay, last question, and this is going to require you to sort of um, eat perhaps your own words. And so you in the book talk about stance, taking a stance, how a stance is how you see the world around us, but also how one sees their self in the world, if you will, if I'm paraphrasing. So I I love you to take a stance. What have you learned uh, since writing the book and going through a pandemic and we're still kind of in it? So. What have you learned from integrative thinking that we're getting right? Mm-hmm. And what is it still? I think that gap analysis, if you will, from you know taking a stance as well, Dan, this is where it's horribly going wrong. And this is the things we still need to be doing. Fascinating. So, so I think um, the place where integrative thinking is most challenging is when we move out of the realm of a business or organizational decision, a strategic decision, and we start to get to a place where decisions have moral or ethical components. Uh, Because when I said at the beginning that there are no right answers, um, from a philosophy or moral or ethics point of view, that that may not be be as valid, right? That, That there are certainly people, places where there is a strong sense of, of a moral right or a moral wrong. And what we saw play out over the year, two years, eternity of the pandemic, exactly, um, is the way in which debates that have a more moral or ethical component are deepening rifts in our society. Mm. Um, Whether that is about people who say our number one value as a society should be shared safety versus folks who say our number one value as a society should be sort of individual freedom. I think that's a deeply 
divisive debate that we have seen. And the thing that makes me sad is that we seem unable to even speak across that divide that that over the last few years, it's gotten harder and harder and harder to hear each other because we see folks on the other side of that as not just misguided, but morally wrong, evil. Um, And so the thing that I wonder that we haven't thought as enough about is the application of integrative thinking to those larger social discussions or to um, public policy, uh, because I think it is well applied, thoughtfully applied in the in organizations and in the world of business and in education. Um, the question I have is, what would it take for us to apply it in the broader world of public policy? Because that's where I worry if I look particularly to the South, we're Canadian, um, we are not immune in Canada, but but certainly the heat of these moral and ethical debates in the United States is getting ever, ever higher. And that worries me. Entrenched thinking without having uh, the possibility to believe and um, empathize with one's opposable thought to reach a more and better created solution between the two. Absolutely. What if there was an answer that got us closer to both safety and freedom? What what if that were possible? Um, wouldn't that be worth considering? And I worry that in, in the public debate that we have right now, there's not even uh, a willingness to contemplate because the absolutism has, has become so entrenched. Well, in the spirit of mashups then between freedom and safety, then I guess that's uh, safedom. We can call sure. it safedom. Yes. Safedom. That's, that's, you've coined a phrase. I like it. That's yours. I'll give that one to you, Jennifer. Listen, uh, where can we find out more about you and clearly your work that you're doing at one of uh, the world's most creative organizations, I must say, out there? So you can come find us at, at IDEO, at IDEO.com. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter while it exists. And, um, I just dated this, uh, podcast by saying that, uh, and, uh, LinkedIn, and you can find the book creating great choices kind of everywhere. Just, ha- just Google it and you'll find it. Fantastic. Listen, I, I do want to thank you. It's not only great catching up, but, uh, I do remember one of our first exchanges in Toronto there. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this is one smart cookie. And I can't wait to learn more from her. And sure enough, a couple of years later, Creating Great Choices came out and it's such a wonderful addition to the world. And uh, as I mentioned to you in the green room, uh, when I reread the book, it really became one of those impetus points for me to rethink you know, this notion of one idea versus another idea and coming to a conclusion of a better idea between the two opposing ideas to come up with what ultimately will be my, uh, my fifth book. So Jennifer, thank you for that. And thank you for this. Um, and thank you as always for what you're doing for this world to make it a better place. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm excited to hear about the book and what becomes of your inspiration. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That's another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract, today in the house, Jennifer Rial. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, tune in next time for another guest in this show. Thanks, all.